it was really challenging my first placement um, because it was always the thing that scared me the most was going out into practice and I think that's um, I think it's quite common among students because we're so keen to do a good job to help people and I think a lot of us carry a fear that was not doing the job well so for me it was very challenging just to go out there and participate and um, be part of uh, the interactions and work with children work with parents um, but I learned a lot from it Welcome to another RCSLT podcast. Uh, this year, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists is celebrating its 75th anniversary. And so we've got themes for every month. And this month's theme is love. We're at Birmingham City University to talk to Ruth Williams again. Um, Ruth is going to talk to us about the importance of loving yourself, of, of practicing self-care, and really importantly, of how to deal with conflict and how to appreciate the emotion behind the behavior of others. Uh, Ruth has been invited to talk to the third year students who are just about to go out on their, on their final placement. So we're going to listen in on the lecture and then catch up with her afterwards. Like Rebecca said, it's a long story. I um, spent 22 years in the army, got out of the army um, and started driving um, minibuses for a friend of mine and I was driving special needs children to school in the mornings, um, interacting with them, so I could work with them full time. Um, then I ended up working up, ended up working in the school. Um, from that, I got a full time job in the school, mainly with the autistic. Side of things. If you can't answer it, so you'll disappear. Wave at me. And then... So we've got 90 minutes together, and I'm hoping this this will be a real mixture of theory and tools that you can take with you on placement. Um, and they're not just placement, but as I've put in here, at work and in life as well. So Jack is with me from RCSLT, because we've been making a podcast um, together today, um, around February's theme for the RCSLT 75th anniversary um, of love. Um, so the alternative title for this workshop is How to Love Yourself and Everyone Else That You Meet. So we've just finished the lecture and uh, so Ruth and I have grabbed a room here in the university to talk about some of the concepts that, that came up in the workshop. So do you remember your first placement? Oh I do, yes. Um, yeah, it was one day a week with, um, well the placement that I remember is one day a week in a hospital in North Manchester. Um, mixture of wards and community. Um, yeah, it was good. It was good fun. It was probably not the right learning environment for me. I, looking back, reflecting, needed longer block placements for me to, because I'm such an experiential learner um, to really get stuck into how do you apply the theory and how do you see somebody through on a longer rehab journey rather than dipping in and out of different cases and different people's lives. Um, so the thing that stands out more than anything is the um, trying to get into people's houses when they're not in, the therapist's car being broken into while we were in somebody else's house, and the joys of being in community, which is where I've ended up now. So. Right. And if, 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 if someone was about to go into placement, what's your, what's your one piece of advice to them? My, my one piece of advice is um, look after yourself. It's absolutely okay. You have permission 
to think about yourself, love yourself, look after yourself, be kind for your, to yourself, and then um, by doing that means that you'll be your authentic self um, and you'll be an even better student, speech and language therapist, person, and therefore deliver better services for our clients. So you've got this, this lecture that I've just seen you deliver, but this doesn't just apply to students, does it? Um, so hopefully the theory and the skills are tips and techniques that um, we should all be learning and we could all learn and that this group of students can actually then take into their first jobs, um, how they deal with people in general, um, when they get a promotion and increasing caseloads, how they manage themselves and the additional pressures of um, busy caseloads, complex caseloads. Um, so the learning for me has been a lifelong skill, not just about preparing for placement. So you didn't have, you didn't have this when you were a student? I didn't. And um, what did that mean? So I've only learnt the theory and the practice of this in the past two to three years. Um, and up until that point, um, I suppose I'd got reduced awareness of how I landed in the world, why I couldn't quite connect with... How did you land in the world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd to apologise to everybody that... Um, yeah, so how did I land in the world? So um, probably like a grenade most of the time. So the compliment is that I always have a lot of passion and a lot of enthusiasm, um, which is great if you love that aspect of me. But if you're not that sort of person and you're much quieter, you're an introvert, or you're much more of a reflector, my style would have completely wound you up, probably brought out um, a whole load of feelings and antagonism, um, and I also, I always wondered why some people just I wasn't able to connect with them very easily or um, all the subtle sabotage that goes on um, in workplaces and in teams and I can't ascribe intent so I can't sit here and say that people intentionally sabotaged plans and ideas but the more I've learnt about um, emotional intelligence and human relations, the more I've realised that some of that behaviour is communication in another form and it's people behaving in a way that tells me now that they were scared, apprehensive, worried um, and that I didn't have a connection with them so we weren't on the, the change journey or the rehab journey together. Right, so I mean in the last podcast when we were talking about stuff we were talking about a lot of projects that you had implemented over the years. And so you're saying you came to this in a way because as you were trying to implement uh, care in the community and different sorts yep. of projects, you were coming across people that we sometimes in, in leadership, we just call blockers absolutely. and we just go, wow, they're the blockers. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to work out then where the resistance is coming from um, and why not everybody in the room gets the same vision straight away and at the same time and why what is it that means that people are quote unquote the blockers but then more importantly how I act how I am to help those people see the vision and take that leap of faith to go on the journey. Um, so to take a step back you said all the stuff that you're that you're teaching the students about today and which we think is useful for 
SLTs in their career is, is called psychodynamics. It is. So do I need to go and get out my Freud that I haven't read for 20 years? No, not at all. Okay, what is psychodynamics? Psychodynamics is a bit like an iceberg. Um, and based on the work that Beacon House have done, which is an organisation that works with children and families that have undergone trauma, um, the, on the top of the iceberg, what you see is behaviour. So that could be disengagement, aggression, um, complaints, um, people being a bit too loud or a bit too quiet. And what we don't see is everything going on under the surface and all that emotional stuff for somebody as a human being um, driving that behaviour, which might be fear, it might be a sense that they're not good enough, they're not competent, um, it could be that my style isn't suiting them, so they're sort of a bit more defensive, um, and then that's, that's all coming out as what you can see and how somebody behaves. I wonder if you could just, if you could give me um, an example of of, of, of kind of conflict that you have at work? Yeah, so I work with somebody called Helen who is a planner, she loves deadlines, she works to deadlines and she needs lots of reassurance that things are done um, in plenty of time, whereas I'm very lastminute.com. So the two of us working together can often cause conflict, particularly when she asks me and is looking for reassurance around um, actions that we've agreed and I haven't done them. And I then take that really personally because I know, I feel, not I know, I feel that it's a criticism of my inability to meet her deadlines. And if I'm not careful and I don't self-regulate at that point, I can often end up biting Helen's head off um, as my reaction to feeling um, worthless, that I haven't done what I've said I'm going to do. And if we don't then have an adult conversation and talk to each other about it, we end up spiralling, so we'll then have to part ways and then apologise and then start again, which takes up a lot of emotion. What Ruth was talking about reminds me a great deal of a famous commencement speech given by the American author David Foster Wallace back in the early 90s before he very sadly took his own life. If you haven't heard it, I'd recommend Googling it. It's only about 20 minutes long. Um, Wallace spoke a lot about appreciating the emotion or the context that underlies the explicit behaviour, which can be uh, very challenging or, or aggressive, and how simply entertaining what might underlie that behaviour can have a very important impact on the way in which we interact with people. I think this idea that we don't always know or understand what underlies another person's behaviour is really key to getting the most out of work and of being able to help people um, and, and importantly of, of also being able to get along with your colleagues. We need to look beyond the behaviour but this is what Ruth and I discuss next. This does not mean that we are looking for a way to eliminate conflict from the workplace. But is it fair to say then that, that what's interesting about this, when you go, I have lots of enthusiasm and passion and everything for the job, you need that, you need the energy, but if it was just you and more people like you on the team, presumably things would never get done. Absolutely. 
I absolutely need a completer finisher in my life. I need somebody to hold me to account, to ask me the difficult questions about the detail, to keep finding out, well, why are we doing this? How are we going to do How are we going to get from point A to point B in our change journey if you haven't thought about the detail? And I'm eternally optimistic and we always get there. Um, but if you're a if you're the sort of personality who likes detail and needs the detail and clarity to function, I'm an absolute nightmare to work with, or I was an absolute nightmare. Well, to I mean, because what I find interesting about this is, um, is that, and it's a it's a it's a point I don't think we've we've touched on before. But if there is no conflict, that's problematic because that means there's something not right there. That means we have too many of the same type of people in a room, possibly. And there's loads of evidence around um, conflict as a force for good and conflict as a um, catalyst for better solutions. And then you get into embracing diversity and actually seeking out people who are different to you and think differently to you um, and getting out of that echo chamber to challenge yourself, challenge your thinking. And you might actually get better outcomes by not being with like-minded people all the time. Right. So the issue, so interesting what we're saying here when we're talking about conflict resolution is, is it's, not, it's not necessarily about eliminating conflict from the workplace, but it's about managing it in a productive way. Absolutely. And managing yourself so that you don't... So recognising the conflict, recognising how I behave in a conflict situation but then being able to self-regulate my behaviour so I don't unintentionally sabotage my relationships with people and therefore we won't get any outcomes because we can't work together. So Helen's saying to you, Ruth, you better finish that project. The deadline is the 14th. That's fine. That's necessary to keep you on track. Absolutely. Where it comes in is you not experiencing that as criticism, snapping, Absolutely. and then things escalating. and then So it's conflict Yes, fine, but without all the emotional vomit and Absolutely. pain. Yeah. And me being able to spot what could be emotional vomit, um, but being able to leave it in the room, and then being able to embrace Helen's different traits, and being able to say, you're quite right, I haven't met this deadline, um, help me, and being slightly vulnerable, and actually asking for help. Um, and actually, maybe I'm not the right person to be. What we talked about next is something called the drama triangle. It's an idea that was put forward by Stephen Karpman in the late 60s. So it, it may well be quite familiar to a number of listeners. But if you need a quick refresher, the drama triangle describes uh, three states that, that any of us can be in during conflict. Sometimes we can be the victim, like we're being uh, persecuted or, or, or bullied by a, a colleague or a fellow team member. Sometimes we can be the rescuer, it's the person who swoops in and gives advice or, or protects the victim. And sometimes we can be the persecutor. We look at a situation that we think is a mess and we feel we need to um, tell people what's what. You know, sometimes people need to be brought into line or, or disciplined even. And, and then Ruth told me an interesting story about a relationship with um, a family member of a patient that illustrated this dynamic. So it illustrated how these roles uh, that we play can be unhealthy, but more importantly, how we can occupy multiple positions at, at any given time and how the, the drama triangle can help us look at our behavior 
and sometimes break these these dysfunctional patterns that we have. Yeah, there was um, one situation in particular. Um, there's a gentleman who's the husband of a client. Um, Mr O and he would ring me what felt like every day to shout at me around how useless we were as a rehab service we weren't making his wife better she'd had multiple strokes and um, he wanted us to get better he wanted us to go in and fix her and we couldn't because she'd probably got vascular dementia but it was undiagnosed at the time and it was really helpful to use the Cartman drama triangle um, to really understand what roles we were all in while we were having these conversations. So um, I'm going to make an assumption that he felt like a victim. He definitely um, put me in the role of persecutor. And if I hadn't been careful, it would have been really easy to rescue him. Um, I also felt like a victim at the time, every time he was shouting at me. So we, we kept moving our way around this triangle. So how would you have rescued him? So rescuing would have involved very much re-sending in the rehab team over and over again. Just to make him go, to, yeah, go away, basically. To, yeah. yeah, and to placate him and to help him feel better. But it wouldn't have achieved the outcomes he was looking for. It wouldn't have made his wife better. Um, and it would have been a, you know, a lot of therapists who kept then feeding back to me about what are we doing, why are we doing this, what outcomes are we trying to achieve. Um, and you could argue it might have been a bit cruel for her because she wasn't, she wasn't in a fit state for active intensive rehab. She'd got vascular dementia, she was deteriorating by the week and she needed a completely different model of care which I believe he wasn't ready to accept at the time and it was easier to shout at me um, than it was to sit with the discomfort of the fact that his wife was deteriorating and dying and that actually they needed to get ready for that rather than hanging on to the fact that he was going to get his wife back. So what did you actually then do? So I turned the drama triangle into the winner's triangle and um, the very first thing I had to do, thinking about the emotional intelligence model, was look after myself and realise that this man shouting at me was about his iceberg and his emotional vomit and not about me. And then find a huge dose of empathy how, how do I walk a mile in this man's shoes and understand what's going on underneath the surface of that iceberg for him? And then bring in an inquiry or coaching technique, um, which assumes that he had the answers and he had the solutions. And it breaks that triangle of us all being a different in multivarious roles. Um, and that asking him how and what questions helped him to get to a position where he was able to identify that they needed to see a consultant psychiatrist, she needed to get a different diagnosis, um, and he needed help and support to come to terms with her diagnosis. Right, I mean, and, and this must, but I guess this type of thing must be, must be common, I mean, where you have... I hope this podcast has been of interest. Uh, Ruth has made materials and links available if you want to read up about some of the things that we, we talked about. If you have suggestions or questions, please do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your, your thoughts and ideas. 
Afterwards, Ruth and I went out for a cup of tea at the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, which if you haven't been, I'd highly recommend. They're very beautiful. Um, for our next podcast, we're going to be in this neck of the woods again. And we're going to be hearing about some as yet unpublished research about SLTs and their well-being and their attitudes towards the profession and how they're coping in the NHS, but also further afield. Um, we're going to be at an Asseltip meeting, so we're also going to hear from some independents. Uh, I hope you'll join us again. And there were parakeets in all the parks at Brussels oh, as well. Yeah. Oh, they're recording us on the last day of the <laughs>